0: And uh, the book of Numbers is essentially a story of two generations. Uh, The first generation of Israelites failed uh, to trust in the Lord. They stubbornly rebelled against him. And as a result, they, they wander in the wilderness for a long time and die there. And the second generation sees all this. And the question is, what will they do? Will they do anything differently? And this is the point where we are in Genesis 21. We're, we're, we're beginning to transition from the first generation to the second generation. Now, uh, growing up, uh, or actually watching your children grow up is is sort of an interesting and sometimes uh, weird process because as your children grow up, you, you, you begin to realize they take on certain characteristics. You know, uh, they... they they mimic, uh, they, they repeat back to you things that can sometimes be encouraging and can sometimes be humbling. Um, but it, it's interesting because kids can be so similar and at the same time different than their parents. You might have a child that looks exactly like their dad but actually has the personality of mom. And, uh, you know, when my... Uh, Sister was in our family. she's blonde hair, blue eyes. no one else in our family has blonde hair, blue eyes. We were pretty sure she was exchanged in the hospital with someone until we saw a picture of my mama, my dad's, uh, my dad's mom, as a, as a young lady. And uh, now I only knew my Mom Mom as, as an old woman, and so my brother and I tease my sister that, you know, she looks more and more like Mom Mom every day, but, but she actually fit into the family. And growing up, I was always told, uh, Dave, you are a splitting image of your father. And my dad was handsome, and so I didn't mind that. Um, But I never really thought that I reflected much of my mother's looks until in high school. uh, During Spirit Week, we celebrated Gender Bender Day, which meant something very different back then than it does today. Some things are different, and some things are the same. But uh, So I, I dressed up, and I remember Michael Sweat, a good friend of mine, looking at me and saying, Oh, my goodness, Dave, you look exactly like your mother. Now, the only thing that was more horrifying that that's, than that statement is I looked in the mirror, and, and he was right. <laughs> I, my mom is a very beautiful woman, but for, uh, for a young, insecure teenager, it's not exactly what you want to be told. The, the point is, is that sometimes it takes a while to see those similarities and differences, doesn't it? It takes a while for them to develop. Um, and the same is kind of true of what we're reading in, in the book of Numbers. Here's, here's my point. E- each generation reflects similarities and differences to the previous generation and the Israelites, it was the exact same thing. As you read the historical narrative, you can't help but notice that n- this new generation is different in, in several significant ways. Yet at the same time, they look and behave remarkably similarly to their parents. Chapter 20 is the beginning of the end of the first generation. The previous uh, generation bracketed by the death of Miriam and Aaron uh, are, is coming to an end. And now in chapter 21, the story begins for this new generation. And the transition, you know, just like, you know, changing from one generation to another, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Remnants of the first generation are there until chapter 26, uh, when a new census will mark the complete transition to the next generation. And so as this new generation rises to replace the old, the important question at the forefront of the story is, What will characterize this new generation? How will they be different and similar to their parents' generation? And what will they learn from their parents' mistakes? Um, And what will they repeat of their parents' mistakes? Now, these are the questions facing every generation, right? Uh, Not just those in the Exodus. Each generation must decide whom they will serve what legacy they will pass on to their children will be a legacy of faith and courage in the Lord and in his promises or a legacy of fear and grumbling about their circumstances and grumbling about the Lord's apparent mismanagement of their life. You and I face the same questions today. So that's what we're going to look at as we look at Numbers uh, chapter 21. We're going to look at the similarities and differences of the first and second generation. And then we're going to look at, secondly, the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. How he's faithful to discipline and he's faithful to save. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll dig in. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are God of revelation and that you are faithful from generation to generation. God, we pray that you would help us to pay attention to your word, uh, to listen, to let its truths uh, pierce our heart and soul, to let it convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's first of all look at the differences between the generations. And I'll be reading uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. So when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of that place was called Hormah. So here, the new generation starts out very differently. Uh, They have victory over the Canaanites, and we only have a brief snapshot, but it illustrates a significant change in direction than the first generation. Notice verse 1, the war was initiated by the Canaanites, and it was during... Just as it was during the previous generation, the Canaanites initiated war both times. The Canaanites attack Israel and they take some Israelites captive, just as before. And in the past, such an action would have thrown the people of Israel into a downward spiral of fear and despair and grumbling. But this new generation remains composed. Instead of immediately giving into their fear, they evidence a backbone of faith. And instead of grumbling and complaining, they go to the Lord. And in verse 2, they make a vow. They say, if you will give this people into our hand, we will devote all the spoils to you. For that's what it means when they say they promise to devote the cities to to destruction. The word there is harem or destruction. In other words, instead of keeping the spoils for themselves, Israel recognized God was the one who would fight their battle and God was the one who would carry out his purposes. And and that's exactly what happened. The Lord gave the Canaanites into their hands and Israel follows through on their vows and they devote the spoils to God instead of taking them for themselves for they knew it was the, the Lord's battle and that he had won. Now, incidentally, harem, this practice of devoting cities to destruction, was not a regular part of Israel's warfare. It was, for the most part, associated with the conquest of Canaan. Now, you might ask, why is that? Well, the reason is that the story of Israel foreshadows the story of all God's people. The exodus, the wilderness wanderings, Israel's conquest of Canaan, each part is a visual depiction, a foreshadowing of ultimate realities. How do I mean? Well, just as God calls Israel out of the house of slavery and idolatry so that they can worship him and be his people, so he calls us his people out of sin and idolatry so we can worship him. Uh, Just as God cares for Israel through the wilderness, so he cares for his people, us, as we go through our wilderness experiences. Just as God is faithful to bring Israel into the promised land, so he brings us, his people, into the promised land of heaven. And just as God waited until the iniquities of the Amorites was full before bringing full judgment, so God will bring full judgment on all who refuse to repent of their wickedness and continue in their idolatry. So the Exodus, the wanderings, the conquest each is a visual depiction of these ultimate realities. They're not just random, you know, acts of violence. They're not unjust or cruel. Rather, on the one hand, they illustrate the holy judgment of God Against human wickedness, stubborn human wickedness, and on the other hand, they illustrate the merciful care of God toward the oppressed and the marginalized. Now more could be said um, about Harem and this practice, but let's move on to the rest of the text. Back to verse three, it says, "And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over to the Canaanite and, and, and gave them over to the Canaan." Uh, I'm sorry. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction, so that the name of the place was called Hormah. Israel's victory here serves as a reminder that it is God's glory that is in focus. He blesses Israel with victory, not because, you know, they were remarkable, but because he's remarkable. It's not because of Israel's might— that enables them to win, but God wins their battle by his might. And it's not because of Israel's righteousness, but because of God's righteousness. God is determined to fulfill what he has promised, to bring ultimate judgment on the Canaanites after patiently giving them many generations to repent of their wickedness. This is the Lord's battle. It's his victory, and he should receive all the spoils. And this is when, you know, the Israelites... Um, This is why they get in such trouble later on, like with Achan, when they take the spoils of war and, and why it's such a serious offense because it's stealing from the Lord. It's taking credit for winning the battle. So in summary, the main difference here in the second generation is that this generation decides to walk by faith, not fear. Instead of grumbling, they go to the Lord. They make a commitment to offer all the winnings to the Lord. And by doing as the Lord's commands, they remove idolatry from the land so they might not be tempted in the future. Ian Duguid clarifies the significance of not just Israel's win, but where they win the battle, He writes that Israel's victory here in Numbers 21 was all the sweeter because it occurred at Hormath, the site of the first generation's defeat by the Canaanites back in Numbers 14 when they tried to enter the promised land in their own strength. So how does this all apply in terms of this first point? You know, faith, faith makes a real difference. The faithful direction of this new generation shows what could have been true for the first generation. They could have been victorious over their enemies. God would have delivered them. Their wilderness wanderings were unnecessarily long because they gave in to fear and grumbling rather than move forward in faith and obedience. So, this new generation is different in their willingness to seek the Lord and go to battle in his strength. Uh, They're willing to recognize uh, the Lord and be his instruments and go forth and give the spoils to him alone. But there are other ways that they're not so different. So, we pick up in verse 4 to read some of the heartbreaking similarities. Pick up in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they, Israel, set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the, uh, for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten who sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze pole and live. So as we see here though, some things have changed. Other things remain the same. Notice that after God's uh, deliverance and the great victory he gave his people over the Canaanites, you may think that God would immediately sort of take his people into the promised land. But instead, as you notice here in verse 4, the Lord takes his people back toward the wilderness. And they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. You might be thinking, well, what, what is going on here? Movement in this direction uh, probably confused and frustrated the people. No doubt they felt things were either moving backwards or they're going in circles again. Uh, and so instead of waiting upon the Lord and trusting Him, in verse 5, they spoke against God and Moses by repeating the same complaints that the first generation had against God. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For There's no food and we loathe this manna. I mean, these are nearly the identical complaints and accusations that their parents made. What does this mean? Well, it means that this generation is different, but not that different. Kudos for, you know, doing what your parents failed to do by seeking the Lord's favor and engaging in battle. But as we see here, the sins of the parents have already taken root in the children's hearts. And they may have started out well, but here they quickly stumble. And I don't know about you, this is a huge, huge kick in the gut. I mean, if they couldn't get it right, after seeing everything God did to their parents' generation, where is the hope? I was at a school board meeting. I've been going to a few of those. And as board members and teachers and administrators were feeling the heat of parents concerned about the direction of education, which is sounding more and more like indoctrination, they had a common reply. It almost sounded... Like it was a prepared talking point, and it was this. This was their prepared talking point to the parents. Trust the children, they will lead the way. Yeah, I don't know where to begin on that one. Well, let's just say the children will lead the way is not where the book of Numbers lands its hope. The answer is not found in the innocence of children, as we just read. They're not innocent. Hope rests not in children getting it right because their parents messed up, but hope rests in the wisdom and perseverance not of us, his children, whatever generation that may be, but hope rests in the Heavenly Father because he does not change like a shifting shadow. And he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His character is constant and his promises are trustworthy. And though his people prove faithless generation after generation, he will prove faithful. And even though it is worthwhile to mention the differences and similarities of various generations so we can learn from them and we can see God working in unique ways in each generation, our hope is found in understanding the faithfulness of God to every generation. And so that's where we'll turn now. The faithfulness of God in every generation. God responds to the grumbling of the second generation no differently than he did to the grumbling of the first generation. How so? God brings judgment upon their sin to purify to purify them and lead them to repentance and then the people come to Moses in grief and confession admitting we have sinned against God and you pray that the Lord will take away this judgment so Moses intercedes as a good high priest and God answers Moses' prayer and provides a way of deliverance and in keeping with the pattern notice this God's response is perfectly faithful and yet Unexpected, amazingly unexpected. It's exactly what it needs to be in warning against sin and folly. It's precise in its revelation of God's unique power and beauty and holiness, and it's persistent in its encouragement that, that God's people trust and obey Him. And yet, God's perfectly faithful response comes in unexpected ways, just as it has throughout the book, throughout the Exodus, right? I mean, it was surprising when God delivered his people through the sea rather than taking them around the sea. It was surprising how God provided heavenly bread in the barren wilderness. And it's surprising how he provides water, not from a stream, but from a rock. And how he provides meat. How? Out of the air, out of the skies. And here again, God's intervention confirms this pattern. It is both perfectly faithful and amazingly unexpected. Perfectly faithful and amazingly unexpected. So how does this apply? Two applications. Expect God to intervene in your life with just the right instrument of discipline, one capable of finding the crack in the stubborn hearts of his children. How so? Well, let's look at the passage. When the new generation begins to complain in verse 5, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? God rebukes Israel for their accusations by sending fiery serpents. Snakes. Now, why snakes? I mean, it's not like God is randomly choosing something to exercise his judgment. He's not a a reactive father who just grabs the closest thing available, whether it's a belt or a wooden spoon. No, he is a wise and loving father who carefully chooses what's most likely to break through the rebellious child's stubborn heart in order to show him where real danger lies. Now remember, snakes were well-known symbols of Egypt's power and sovereignty. The cobra was the iconic image on Pharaoh's crown. So the question is, having been freed from (laughs) misery and slavery in Egypt, did they really want to subject themselves to the power of the serpent again? And let's not forget that since the Garden of Eden, the serpent is a symbol of the arched enemy of humanity. Satan himself disguised himself as a snake. He deceived the very first generation of humanity in the Garden of Eden. And that fiery snake caused a bite that killed both them and their children and left them wandering in a wilderness. Now let's remember it was never God's fault whether in the Garden or in the Exodus, that his people got stuck in the wilderness. It was always the result of their sinful choices. In the Garden of Eden, God, Adam and Eve got stuck in the wild because they chose to believe the serpent and what he said over what God said. And in Exodus, Israel remained stuck in the desert by choosing to return to the serpent instead, not being the serpent Pharaoh, instead of moving forward by faith into the promised land. And so the question for this new generation and for every generation, including ours, is will you see the serpent for who he really is and turn to God? Or will you be seduced by the serpent and turn away from God? And so by sending fiery serpents, God is reminding Israel not to be seduced back to Egypt and thus turn away from him but to see Pharaoh and Satan and all other deceivers accurately for who they are and then to turn back to God. So in summary, expect God to intervene with just the right instrument of discipline, one capable of finding a crack in your stubborn heart. It's true of Israel. The question is, how might it be true of you? Symbolically speaking, what are your fiery snakes? If you want to discover them, you might take a closer look at what you're tempted to be seduced by and to complain about instead of waiting upon the Lord. Remember, Israel was tempted by Pharaoh in Egypt, even as they complained about Pharaoh in Egypt. Are there fiery snakes at work or at the gym? Are there fiery snakes in your bedroom or in the refrigerator or on your computer? Or in relationships, expect God to intervene with just the right instruments of discipline, one capable of finding the crack into your stubborn heart to effectively warn you of the dangers of continuing down that path. So the pattern of God's intervention is perfectly faithful, and yet it's amazingly unexpected. And this is the second application. Expect God's instrument of deliverance to be amazing, even if unexpected. Just as the fiery snakes were purposefully chosen um, as an instrument of discipline, so too the bronze snake lifted up on a pole was a glorious but surprising instrument of deliverance. Notice verse 8 through 10. The Lord tells Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. And so that's what Moses does. He follows the Lord's instruction, he makes a bronze serpent, sets it on a pole, so if A serpent bit anyone, any person who all they needed to do was look at the bronze serpent and they would be healed and live. My question is, who would think of using the symbol of death, a bronze snake lifted up on a pole for an instrument of deliverance? I mean, God could have used anything to heal his people. He could have had Moses concoct a tonic that everyone needed to drink. He could have made an ointment and applied it to their wounds. But instead, he lifts up the source of their toxin on a pole and commands the sick and dying merely to gaze upon it, not just a glance, but to gaze upon it, to behold it. Why? What does this mean? And I think it means three things. First, it at least means this. Salvation comes only to those willing to humble themselves and let God set the terms of their healing. Pride comes before the fall, not just to individuals, but to generations. And this new generation was tempted to believe, like every generation is tempted to believe, that they're smarter and better than the previous generation. That they are somehow made of better stuff. After all, they've already had great victory that their parents didn't have. But in their complaining and grumbling against God and Moses, the same foolish pride that foiled their parents' generation remains alive and well in their own hearts. And so God, in his wisdom, requires them to humble themselves to relieve their pain and suffering And if they want to get well, they must trust in the Lord and lean not on their own own understanding. They must look to the symbol, the very thing that is killing them. Look to it, lift it up on a pole. And only if they're willing to do this, even if it contradicts their reasons and their expectations and their understanding, only if they're willing to do this can they be saved. What are the implications? Those who demand healing on their own terms and in their own way are not ready to be healed. Only those willing to submit themselves before God and allow God to set the terms and the conditions for their healing and for their salvation will receive its benefits. Those who still grumble against God that God should do it this way or that way will miss out. The pain and suffering they might otherwise find relief from will linger. And they will not receive the benefits of the healer until they're ready to submit to the ways of the healer. If you go to the physician and the physician says, this is what you must do to be healed, and you say, I don't want to do it. Well, guess what? You're not going to be healed. The same is true here. Second, not only must you humble yourself, salvation comes only by the grace of God, And not your works or anything you can do to heal yourself or save yourself. Notice the situation of those who who grumbled against God was dire. They were bitten by poisonous snakes. I mean, the venom is already in the system. It's running through their veins. It's killing them. And they can't save themselves. It's beyond that. It's past that. That's past the point of no return. And if any rescue was to come, it had to come from outside them. God had to bring it. And to remove all doubt that they didn't have to contribute anything to their healing. God requires no ritual, no magic words. There's nothing they can do other than take God at his word and turn away from whatever else is captivating their gaze. Maybe it's their pain. Maybe it's their suffering. Maybe it's their ointments and their own attempts to heal themselves. They're to turn away from that and turn to the symbol of their salvation and gaze upon it. And as they do and recognize this is by God's power, nothing I can do. Salvation comes because salvation comes only by grace. So that salvation comes to those willing to humbly accept God's offer in God's way. It comes by grace. And third, salvation comes from the faithful God who is the same from beginning to end. Listen, there are no two ways to salvation. There's not an Old Testament way to be saved and a New Testament way to be saved. God's people are saved through the covenant of grace where Jesus is concealed in the Old Testament but revealed in the New. We're always saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says as much in Luke 24, after he rose from the dead, and his disciples have a lot of questions about everything. He, he turns to his disciples and he says, Oh foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scripture and all the things that it said concerning himself. See, it doesn't take much of an imagination to see how God is using a snake lifted up on a pole as an instrument of salvation to point to the cross of Jesus Christ. There we have the cross of Jesus Christ foreshadowed, concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. For on the cross, the cross, the antidote of the ancient serpent's toxin was made. And like all antidotes, the solution is usually found in the toxin itself. Did you know that? Any biology majors here? It's usually where you find the antidote, in the toxin. See, Jesus defeated sin by becoming sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so as we gaze upon him, as he is lifted up, we are healed for on the cross, Jesus absorbed the sins of the world into himself. And after having absorbed the sins of the world, you and me, into himself, he allowed the full judgment and wrath of God to be poured down upon him. And he absorbs that wrath in full in our place. He pays the full price of our sin, meeting the just demands of God and establishing the forgiveness and healing of his people. If only we would gaze upon him and see him lifted high upon that pole, so we might. And so the bronze snake lifted high on the pole was was glorious but surprising as an instrument of deliverance, but not nearly as glorious and surprising as the cross of Jesus Christ. And like doctors who bear the sign of healing in the the caduceus, I think is what it's called, the two snakes wound around the pole, it's always on their little lapel here. The followers of Jesus also bear the symbol of healing in the cross. And so dear brothers and sisters, let us look to the cross for our healing, for our salvation. Let us point others to it, for there we find God's faithfulness from generation to, to generation, whatever our similarities and differences, the cross is our only true hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness from generation to generation. You are holy and good and just. And Lord, we confess that we often think our generation has it figured out. And Lord, in some ways, we may figure out some things. We may learn from the past from the mistakes of previous generations and for that we are to be commended just as the second generation of Israelites was to be commended for not giving into their fear but by faith turning to you and entering the battle but at the same time Lord that same disease of sin and selfishness are we are so slow to trust in you so slow to wait upon you that same sin that courses through the veins of of our forefathers still courses through our own. and so let that humble us let it turn our hearts to you. Protect us from being seduced to the things we know like Egypt and Pharaoh that seem to provide immediate relief but offer nothing but enslavement. That's what idols are like. Help us not to be seduced by our idols. But Lord, to take warning and to see that you are God, a perfect heavenly father who brings instruments of discipline into our into our hearts to, to break through our stubbornness that we might we might repent and turn back to you. And Father, not only do you discipline us, but that you surprise us in unexpected ways by offering a salvation that is amazing, even if unexpected. And we see that in the cross. We see that in your sacrificial love. We see that in the church. Who would think that you would use the church so powerfully? A community of sinners saved by grace, and yet you do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would expand your kingdom That you would expand your healing and your salvation in this world. That you would do it in us and you would do it through us. That we may be your agents and instruments in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.